so many of these ergonomic keyboards basically decided, hey, you know what's not ergonomic? Reaching for keys. Which is but, true. You know, which is not, true. It's not wrong. But if you remove those keys, then you've replaced it with a new problem, which is now you've got to do weird like a uh, hand stretching key yeah. combos to like recreate. Like if you don't have like an F7 key and instead you have to like hit like control shift seven or something to do that, uh, then that's probably worse. Right. <laughs> Scotch. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 429 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast of Butterscotch shenanigans. I'm Seth, and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam, and I have something in my eye. I'm Sam, and I like what Seth says, the game dev comedy podcast, because it just has got a lot of good feeling crunchiness in it. The game dev comedy podcast. It's bouncy. Yeah. It's got plosives and stuff. Now, this is a show where we talk about life Business and working in the games industry. Today's August 18th, 20 Jubilee. Before we get started, we got a warning. There's going to be swears, curses, profanities uh, in this, in this, just in this episode. Yep. The other episodes are totally clean, so you totally can just clean. go check all those out. Don't even worry about it. And skip yep. past the intro, too. Don't, don't even worry about it. We just learned about uh, profanity in between the last podcast and this one, so we're going to yeah. try it out. We gotta, we're going to do some do some test deployments mm-hmm. of our new new favorite words. Uh, we'd also like to thank our recurring supporters over at moneygrab.bscash.net. Thank you very much for your monthly donations to help keep the podcast going. Now, Here's the deal. We got just a couple of a couple of little things to talk about, and uh, then we're gonna hit some questions. So first thing I want to talk about is Stitch for Stitch. VS Code. So Adam, take it away. What's yeah. Stitch? So Stitch is our open sourced uh, project. It's sort of a collection of tools for working on game maker projects, building pipelines. That's what we do for our our pipeline and stuff. And then more recently, we've been and we've talked about this in the podcast. A little while ago, um, I've been working on a Visual Studio Code, which is a code editor that people use for web dev and really anything because it's a cool, open source, very extendable project. VS um, Code for for short. Yeah, VS Code for short. Uh, it's a free, free thing by Microsoft um, and uh, and it's great. So I use that for all of my, my web dev. But that's also where stuff like Copilot, which we've also talked about a lot in the past, comes in because Copilot is AI to help you program and it is really good. Um, mm-hmm. and that lives in VS Code. And so so we wanted to get access to that stuff. And so I'd been working on um, basically a, vis- a VS Code extension to make it so we can actually work on GameMaker projects in VS Code so we can get access to Copilot and other, other cool tools. Um, so we talked about this a little bit in the past, and so this is more of just to say, like, it's worth checking out again if you... If it's something that you're interested in exploring, if you if you do GameMaker stuff and uh, want to see what it's like to have Copilot or you know other mm-hmm. tools at your disposal, or just to use an alternate editor, um, uh, Stitch for VS Code is now it can kind of do all of the stuff at this point. Um, so in particular, all the code stuff, all the code stuff, and it, so so it doesn't have like all the visual editors for sprites and that kind of stuff, and it's never going to. Um, that's all stuff that's squarely gets to stay in GameMaker's wheelhouse. Um, mm-hmm. This is just about making it as easy as possible to navigate the code and, and to edit it, um, and it's just gotten into a really good spot as of this week where you can now fully manage your asset tree. You can you can reorganize everything. You can delete stuff. You can add new resources, right? So you can do all of that kind of stuff you'd want to be able to do. You can run your game right from VS Code as long as you have real game maker installed. Um, 
you can just kind of do all of that stuff. Uh, but also your ability to kind of just navigate through the project and find stuff is just super reliable and super slick now um, to the point where it, it was actually one of my major motivations for starting the project in the first place was that the game maker editor itself, the official one, it's just so hard to navigate the code. Like when, when I'm when I'm going to try to work on Seth's stuff, because almost the entirety of Crashlands 2 is written by Seth, right? If I'm trying to go in and like figure something out and I'm using that editor, I just can't find anything. Like you can't, you can't like start, to start in one place and, and like find your way back. be like, oh, where is like where is this thing defined? And like go to that definition, or ooh, let me see all the references to this thing so I can figure out where it's used, and therefore try to figure out how this thing works, right? Uh, and so that was a lot of what I had tried to solve. And as of as of this week in particular, like all the little kind of remaining jank is is basically resolved um yeah. so yeah it's pretty dope pretty dope i highly recommend giving it a shot yeah and if you're a game maker yeah, dev tough. like a hobby dev or something like that and you've been wanting to take your it's basically to me it's a profession it's a, like a professional layer on top right where it allows you to do some yeah. stuff in a way that allow it opens access in an interesting way for more professional development and more kind of professional studio development to happen more much more easily yeah. than like the base game maker experience so yeah so in a weird way there's so i've been using it a lot because i spend all day every day programming game maker stuff um and up until pretty recently i was able to use stitch in vs code about half the time uh and then at some point i would run into something like oh i need to uh i need to create a new object or i need to move this into a different folder or whatever and we didn't have those features yet. So then I would have to open up the Game Maker IDE and do that stuff in there. And then, you know, sometimes I would just stay in there because I wasn't sure if I was going to run into that again. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, because context but, switching yeah. is always annoying. Hard. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like I would always start my day in VS Code. Um, and earlier on, you know, I could do maybe like an hour of stuff in VS Code before I would. And it's a list run, of issues. Yeah, let's start <laughs> to run into missing features or whatever. And I'm kind of hitting the point now where I'd say about ninety percent of my about of my programming time I can just do in in Stitch and in VS Code. Um, and it's only really when I'm doing like a lot of sprite work or audio yeah. stuff, stuff that isn't making, code, basically. Yeah. yeah, stuff that needs like these like more sophisticated editor, like visual editors and stuff like that. Um, so it's it's coming on great. But the the funniest thing is. Is that you know we did this so we could get Copilot, right? Mm-hmm. Co- Copilot is kind of interesting because it no it doesn't know GML, it knows JavaScript, and GML is similar to JavaScript, very close. but it isn't like not very JavaScript. similar. But there are some mm-hmm. important, very important differences. Yeah, and and big thing is that you know is that GameMaker language has thousands of built-in functions that do all kinds of things that JavaScript does not have. Yeah, or if right. it does, so, it has them in a different kind of a way, right? Yeah. So, for example, like if you want the length of a of a list of something in in uh, gaming language, you use the function called array length, yeah. which JavaScript doesn't have that function. But in JavaScript, so, you can actually just call. There are variables that live on arrays. So you can like you have an array and be like array dot length. So you just dot like, length. You yeah. just like poke a hole into your array and ask for its length, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's the same same concept, but you know each language has its own way of doing it, and Copilot doesn't know that. So what I basically found is that is that at the moment Copilot is still pretty constrained, where it can see what you're what you're currently working on, like in the current file that you're working on, and I think it can also see stuff that you have in other tabs, yeah. right? Other yeah. other open so, tabs are pulled into yeah. context, yeah. So basically, like if I have a bunch of tabs open, uh, then Copilot will do a decent job of figuring out like, oh, this, 
this isn't JavaScript. I want to get the length of this array or something. I'll use this array length function instead of dot length, right? But um, it doesn't know everything, right, about the whole project. It doesn't know all, it doesn't know all my variables and all that stuff. And so, so a lot of the times, uh, Copilot just gives me like weird stuff that actually doesn't really work at all or like doesn't fit. So it's still like it's way better than not having it because yeah, a lot of, like sometimes it like does just fancy, mail it, you know? and, and it's otherwise it's like a fancy autocomplete, right? Like for like within the same file you're working on, it just does a really good job of like, oh, I've seen you use this variable a bunch of times in the same file. I'll just like so you start typing it, it's like, oh, did you mean to do this whole thing? You know, and yeah. so it's yeah, it's pretty good with that. But the funny thing is like the the killer feature actually that's like keeping me in VS Code more than anything is. The ability to wiggle my mouse wheel to the left. I to, know, right? To go forward to, and back. Yeah. To go back to where I was before. Oh. Yeah. Right? Because like in Game Maker, like if, I, if I'm working on a script, I'm like, oh, I got to go check something else out. And then I go to a different function. And then, oh, I got to go to a different function. And, and I'm doing all that because of what I started doing a, mm-hmm. a while ago. Yeah. Being able to then just like hit a little back button and just and just have it pop me right back to where I was like it's like that on its own yeah. is which, such an incredible feature. <laughs> which I, which I, this is what I was saying, right? Like like it was it was the inability to navigate the a project Start the whole thing yeah. in Game Maker. Yeah, that that, yeah. that the made funny it thing so is like, frustrating. And that feature that you're talking about is is the core one that made me so because it's because it, it's already hard to navigate projects in the in the game maker IDE. Or just any um, large code project. Any large code you know, like, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and, and so your the tools available for navigation are actually the most important thing, in my opinion, uh, as a project gets large. And that's the feature set that looks like the game maker IDE just like hasn't really invested into yet. Um, I think their new code editor that they're working on that I think they, they they've pushed it out a bit, but I think by end of the year they're supposed to have that in alpha yeah, some, or beta some, or something some to play new with stuff. Yeah, um, and and I know a lot of the features that they're working on they're kind of saving for the new code editor because they don't want to have to like make the features twice in two different systems yeah. and stuff. So so I, th- I think a bunch of these things that we're talking about are going to be appearing in Game Maker in principle relatively soon right but it is it is those things like you just need that good navigation and that was the thing that when i was i was trying to help seth with something for because for a very short window we were like hey maybe adam should be working on some game code stuff to help seth out right and i was like yeah the problem of course is just that this is all code that seth has written so i need to be able to like na- like understand it you gotta be able to walk around in here you gotta be able to move around and i just like and so i would be like oh what is this doing and i would and i would be doing exactly that i would like drill into something and then be like okay now that i know what this is let me go back to where i started to where i was and i'm like Wait. doing <laughs> and i'm just like searching things again to try to find it yeah and, where and, the fuck was i yeah and that was actually the thing that made that like pushed me into it was that exact experience that pushed me into trying to build a, a, a vs code editor experience for game maker um because I was getting so like the just the cognitive load was so high for me trying to help in any way, and I was like, "How hard is this really? Can like can we?" And the answer is like pretty fucking hard. It's you know, pretty hard. It's been a lot of hours <laughs> of, of labor's gone into it. Armchair dev, uh, go. Yeah, but it's pretty it's pretty slick at this point. It is the case like now I just I feel like I'm flying through the code um, when I'm like mm-hmm. trying to do stuff, you That's know. Good. Uh, and it's still now, and it's now it's actually an even worse experience when I open up the Game Maker IDE because in the interim, none of these features for navigation have been added to Game Maker. Yeah. Right? Again, I think a bunch of them are being added to the eventual new code editor. 
Um, and so as it becomes easier and easier to navigate the project outside, it just feels mm. worse and worse to come back to the Gamemaker IDE and yeah, not I mean, be able to do those things. It seems like a very good plug for it, though. So again, it's open source. It's free. You can just get it in VS Code and then yep. hook your projects up to it and start using it uh, and have just a better time doing code stuff. Yeah. In Game Maker. Doing Game Maker. Yeah. Yeah. Because you still need a Game Maker license. You still need, you know, yeah. you still need to pay pay the Game Maker people and oh, all yeah. of that mm-hmm. stuff. Right. So like uh, And it doesn't we're not, do we're everything not, the Game Maker IDE does, right? Yeah. And it's not intended to. It's it's basically built for to solve all of our use cases, right? And then specifically for code. Um, nothing else. And and like and I've gotten there there are a bunch of people in the community using it. I've gotten really useful uh feedback from them, but but also some things where I'm like, uh yeah, we're not gonna be doing that because like technically yeah it's technically valid gml um but we don't do that and it would be a pain in the ass to support it so we just won't you know so so your mileage may vary depending on what kind of stuff that you're doing in your projects um but uh but yeah i mean it works really well for crashlands too right which is just an enormous enormous project i'm not sure if the last time we looked at lines of code on the thing but it's just as an example when i was testing because i just just yesterday i implemented all the like being able to rearrange stuff in the asset tree so you can like make new folders and move around, click, drag a whole bunch of things in a different folder or whatever. And, and so I just, just to experiment because I, I have a little test project I use for stuff. Right. But then before I ship stuff, I'm like, okay, let me open up crashes too and see what breaks. Mm-hmm. Cause once you hit scale, things change, you know? And I just took like three folders and then like clicked, you know, multi-selected them and then dragged them into a different folder. And then it just like, it just everything kind of froze and then chugged, <laughs> just kind of chugged along a bit, you know. And then finally, actually happened. Finally, like everything updated and it had moved. And then, and then Git showed me that there were like eight hundred and seventy files that had changed or something, right? Just for, just from me moving three folders, right? Just like, grabbing three random folders, yeah, like that's that's the scale <laughs> of shit that we're doing with questions too. And and which I think is part of it too is that the game maker, the current game maker editor itself, like is mostly tested and like really used and stuff by kind of medium to smaller projects. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of these like issues that once you get into larger projects, the, that editor just isn't quite, it's, it's, it hasn't been designed for things of that scale really. Yeah. yeah. Um, or, or is that really more accurate? It's missing the features that you need once you hit that scale. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. And of course, like if, if less than 1% of game maker customers need those features i understand why they wouldn't prioritize oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. putting time yeah. into them so you know but yeah so if you need that a uh, stitch for vs code just look look you can just google it right it's just you can yeah you if you just, just look, if you just look google, at in vs code if you're in vs code and you go to your extensions you can just search for stitch it'll pop up um on, on it's the, like an icon with like a little purple like uh little like head. zombie head kind of zombie <laughs> voodoo doll with the threads shoved through it being yeah. stitched together mm-hmm. yep. uh yeah so then the other kind of interesting thing that happened this week uh, well, I mean, of course, a million interesting things happen, but we only got so much time, right? Mm-hmm. So and a lot of it's only interesting uh, with infinite context, you know? So. Yeah. So Baldur's Gate, which we talked about last week, great game. I'm still playing it. I, I don't even know what, I'm like 20 hours in. I don't actually know how far in I am per like per percentage wise. I don't know if I'm like halfway through or 3%. I have no idea. Uh, but I'm having a great time. Uh, so Larian Studio, the company that made Baldur's Gate, they uh, put out a hotfix a couple days ago. Ooh. This is their fourth hotfix. And when uh, they launched their, a few weeks ago, I think. Mm-hmm. So uh, four, four, maybe two, two or three weeks ago. So they've been launching like a f- hotfix 
every like every, twice a every week almost few days. Every yeah. Day. Yeah. And and for the most part, these hot fixes contain, you know, two or three hundred um bug fixes, crash fixes, uh just like issues where like a, a spell just doesn't work as described or you know, whatever. Um like I just as as a term a term that Adam used, micro jank, which I love, which is like all they're just they're just like fixing micro jank, just all these little things that kind of aren't working very well. So in their latest hotfix, they actually accidentally deployed a bunch of new crashes into the mm-hmm. game. So they it was a hot, mess. A hot garbage, yeah. hot mess. Uh, so they deployed it and immediately players started reporting, oh my god, like my game's crashing all the time, blah, blah, blah. And so after a few hours, they rolled it back. Uh, so they deployed a new version of the game that, or they, they essentially, they just reverted it. So what you can do uh, on Steam, for example, is like you can just like choose which version of your game is the one that people, people had access to. Mm-hmm. And there's a big problem with game versioning that I think a lot of players probably haven't thought much about or like don't, you know, like have the context to recognize like how how this kind of works, which is that um, whenever you increment the version number of a game, what that really means is that is that you've changed the way the, the code works. Yeah, you've changed and something, right? Something, you've changed something. Something behaves and, differently now. Yeah, and what that can also mean from time to time is that Whenever you save data from the games, so like you've, you've played and you've got your, your save that you want to load, um, that may mean that the something has changed in that save file, uh, that that kind of thing didn't used to be there. So it's like maybe it's, there's like a new variable that's stored in there or there's some new stuff or there's like an, whatever it is. Or maybe even like some new items were added to the game that didn't exist before. And then when you save them into your save file, they're in there now. Well, if you if you revert back to a lower version, that lower version doesn't know how to read that stuff in the save file. It doesn't know what those items are or it would read things out of order or whatever the case may be. So you essentially have so, a corrupted file because the game is first, like, what the fuck is the word? What is this? I don't know what these are. Yeah. 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 And so so that means that that in this case, those any any players who played the game for the, you know, during that few hour window and and saved at any point, those saves can no longer be loaded. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, so this is only until a new hotfix goes out that has a higher version number. Yes. Well, they're, basically they're going to, the they're going to like redo the, they're going to redo the patch, figure out those crashes and then redeploy it. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, well, I thought it was really interesting was that I've seen, I've seen studios kind of like botch, deployments before you know it happens especially Sometimes if you're operating again this scale with both the scale of the game and the scale of the player base like it's that's going to be a very like i would be sweating every time we deployed something because you cannot yeah. test you cannot test enough when you have that level of scale right i'm, I'm also actually surprised kind of on that note because because they were in early access for a long time right yeah. and kind of like us with level head they were they had they had figured out how to deploy updates quickly, right? So, because I'm really surprised they already put out four hot fixes in production post, like because this is not early yeah, access. That's great. Right? Yeah. Like people are not signed up for the chaotic kind of experience that early access mm-hmm. is supposed to be for, and mm-hmm. and being able to roll out you know two updates a week or whatever for a production game and and it's have high scale. confidence at yeah, yeah with this many players downstream and have confidence that you're not going to break something is uh is well, a apparently they don't thing. quite have that, that high exactly. they have 
But I wonder I if it's medium if it's confidence. Like, <laughs> I wonder if it's because they haven't like fully made like that kind of a switch from the early access way of doing things to the post-launch way of doing things. You know, Where, right? With a little bit, a little bit more like more testing, a little bit more time between yeah. uh, patches and stuff like that. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's and it's also kind of tough because like with as many developers as they have, the idea of small batch. We, we've talked about small batch delivery before where it's basically like if you change one thing and deploy a patch and then the game starts crashing, you know exactly why the game is crashing. And it's because of the one thing you did, right? <laughs> if you have 500 things in a patch and the game starts crashing, well, have fun. Yeah. Have fun yeah. doing archaeology and excavating and figuring out how the fuck that happened mm-hmm. because you got to go through every change and, and, and narrow it down. Well, in their case, you know, the game is so big and they have so many developers that even if they're putting out a patch every few days that patch has hundreds and hundreds of changes in it (laughs) so they're a large studio it's a big game really together yeah everything's big yeah so yeah i'm just thinking about that because this is actually something that always blows my mind when i hear about like large web companies that have a similar thing right where they've got hundreds or thousands of people who are all basically working on kind of separate things then committing their changes into a centralized system that basically that then does all the automated testing and all that stuff, right? Which is that's, that's the integration step in, in these automated pipelines. Uh, and integration is always the most challenging thing for exactly this reason, mm-hmm. which is you're introducing changes from various sort of locations into one place. Some of that is also really hard to appreciate because it doesn't happen at small scale, but it ha- starts happening at large scale. Is the idea of what it even means for for a, a version to exist, right? Because a version is just a snapshot of changes that have been made in a linear sequence of changes, right? But when a bunch of people are just like kind of throwing changes together using a version control system that allows things to be kind of out of order actually because it just kind of makes up makes it work, you know, mm-hmm. which is how all of them work because they have to to handle that kind of scale – then at any given moment of time, like, what does it mean? So it's like, yeah, a, you, so if you're layering, you right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So if you're layering and you're like, okay, we've got, we've got our milestone, we've got a whole bunch of bugs we want to fix, right? So we have uh, 30 different people all working on bugs, all making commits into this thing, right? Uh, and we've run it through automated test suite and, you know, like whatever, right? And, but what is the, what state do we stop at? and say, okay, we're going to release this thing, right? Mm-hmm. And then that now goes through testing, right? Mm-hmm. Through like human testing and, and like the release, pro- starts going through the release process, goes through lo- localization, like all that kind of stuff, right? While that's happening, everybody didn't stop working on stuff, right? Yeah. So now like the main, tr- the, the trunk, right? People are still submitting things to it. And when you're operating at the scale, the next time you go look at that branch, like a day has gone by and there's like 500 changes or whatever, right? So now if something has gone wrong on your release branch, right? Where you've basically tried to freeze everything and say like, okay, we need to know what's happening so we can test it, make sure it's stable before we get it out. So we have to stop making changes. So you kind of be fork it off, right? And you kind of hold that thing as static as you can while you make sure you can launch it. But if something goes wrong, and we dealt with this at our scale, it's a huge yeah. fucking nightmare just for a few people working on it. Then how do you address it? Because the fix is probably somewhere in the 500 changes that have happened on the trunk in between. But if you bring all of those changes in, you're just starting back over completely. Yeah, right? you might introduce a new crash, right? It's a hard was, challenge. Yeah, we always talk about like game data loss being the most terrifying thing for us on the dev side. Um, yeah. Because like as far as the... You know, one of the, the commitments that you're really trying to offer to the player base is that you're not going to waste their fucking time, right? That's kind of like the whole, really, that's the whole gambit from top to bottom, whether it's 
look at this box art. It means that you're not going to waste your time by playing this game. Like, look at this trailer. Mm-hmm. You're not going to waste your time. And then, you know, to have the person invest their time and then destroy it in like a Thanos snap because of some corruption or whatever else is just the grossest. Like, it just feels the worst. So, so here's what so, was interesting. This is, and this is where we've talked a lot in the past with the idea that like many things that seem just like they are what they are, are actually entirely dictated by structural elements around them that make them be the way that they are. So like the idea of like gamer communities being like angry and toxic or whatever, not, not necessarily true. It really depends on the game mm-hmm. and how the game works. Um, yeah. And so for example, if you have a game that's built on FOMO, the fear of missing out, like a seasonal game with battle passes or mm-hmm. some shit, and every single day that somebody doesn't play that game is a big problem, right? Um, and then your servers go down for a day, yeah. right? Your community will be mad as fuck mm-hmm. because you've made the game such that you're kind of obligated to keep up time, right? <laughs> like that's just how the game works. In the case of Baldur's Gate, um, it it's a, it's largely a single player game. It has multiplayer, right? But like most people are playing it single player. Mm-hmm. So and also like your save will still be there when they de- redeploy the hotfix, right? Um, so also, you'll, you save you'll get like your, constantly, right? And it doesn't overwrite. Yeah, it just like shows. Yeah, you'll pieces. yeah you can yeah you got like a, a certain number of of saves that like twenty. You can, you can change this in the settings, but every time you quick save or save, then it adds that save to a list so you can always go back to an, an older save. Mm-hmm. So, and, and on top of that, the game is branching enough that it's really fun to start a new save. Mm, interesting. Right? Yeah. right? And so the community response was like, ah, oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the whole thing because people are like, yeah, I'll just wait. I'll wait for the hotfix. Or they'll be like, oh, perfect. I, I'm wanting to start a new character anyways, so I'll just do that, you know, or whatever. But there was just like, basic response was honestly this game is so good and it's so big honestly i can't even figure out how you guys are deploying hot fixes this fast anyways yeah uh so it was essentially saying there's there's no loss to my time here because actually i'll just go play the game slightly differently and have a different also rad as fuck experience and that's fine by me essentially this is the same idea that we talked that we talked about as being like one of the one of the core concepts in the crescents 2's design is that is that because this is an accessibility thing, right? Um, it's basically yeah. an accessibility in the sense, like in the very general sense of like, can can people approach it how they want to or can, right? Mm-hmm. And and when a game has lots of ways for you to interact with it, it sort of just creates this inherently. Because so like with questions too, we were, we were have always been talking about the design. Like, what if the player runs into something that they just like can't figure out right now, or they like mm-hmm. run up against a boss fight, they just can't beat that boss. Right. Uh, or they're trying to craft something and it's just like taking forever, right? To get all the ingredients or something, right? If that's the only thing you can be doing right now, that's the stuff that kicks people out of games. And the same mm-hmm. deal, like if you're playing a game and all of a sudden you can't continue your save that you left off because there's a the game is temporarily broken or the yep. web service went down or whatever, right? Like there's nothing for you to do now. You just you're just you don't you're get just stuck, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what kicks kicks people out of games. But as soon as there's just something else you can go do, so it, that doesn't feel worse, right? Yeah. Then you can absorb a lot of of design flaws actually by just mm-hmm. having more stuff to do. You can do, you can you can sort of manage a lot of balance issues in the same way, right? Because it's really hard to balance a game. Actually, it's impossible to balance a game because the concept doesn't 
exists actually because every player comes to a game needing something different from from like what the balance Mm -hmm. even means right so there's no such thing as a balanced game right and so one of the ways you can mitigate that is by just having lots of stuff to do so that the player can just go do something else when they run into a hurdle right and if that something else allows them to come back to that hurdle later it's somehow different than like you can kind of mitigate these things yeah so i think this this is just an example of that right where it's like because of the way the save system works where you can save as you go you can go back to any save at any time and presumably they must have designed it so that when you boot up the game with a new version, it doesn't sort of upgrade all these all the saves it finds. It only does it to the ones you play, right? Which is actually an right. interesting thing because, yeah. like, that's one of those little things where if you didn't think about that, then the more natural thing would be like, oh, we're in a new version of the game. Let's make sure all of this, like, the existing saves are compatible so you would, like, run some check and upgrade them or whatever, right? But the moment you do it, because now, now the, the also the gap between every new version and what version all the saves are and stuff stays really small. Just keeps versus yeah, versus yeah. growing, right? And so, but by not doing that, it means that if they do have to down version at some point, then you got some safety. You got some saves that are compatible still, right? So mm-hmm. there's always like I don't know if you guys remember, but this is back when we were in the office still working on Levelhead. We spent, we were at a whiteboard for hours trying to figure out how to handle our, our versioning problem, versioning strategy. And then there's, there's a whole yeah. bunch of components to it. So it wasn't just like we solved it and we were done. It was like every angle of how to handle this stuff we had to like tackle. And each time we did, it was like a day of work trying to figure out mm-hmm. all of the consequences of the choices that we could make, you know, mm-hmm. it's fucking it's, hard. It's complicated as fuck. Mm-hmm. And so, but I mean, I, I, I thought it was just, it was really great to see that like, the, because of the way the game is made and also because the the I feel like also the player community is in a honeymoon phase. Yeah, they right got a good will well, to earn right? for so like, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, all right, well, you know, with all the good that this game has brought into people's lives, it's all right for there to be like a little fuck up like this. Yeah. It's like such a small thing. And like you said, people have options. They've got other things they can do. What I was laughing though, because quite a few of the comments on like the other uh, Reddit thread that popped up about this um in the Baldur's Gate subreddit was it was basically like people kind of like play acting as if they were upset because now they have to like go see the sun for the first time in three weeks <laughs> or like, so it was like, Oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do tonight now? Spend time with my family? For fuck's sake. You know? <laughs> and so it's like, yeah, it's, it's nice to see a, a community that's just like so pumped and, and they're like forgiving because they're just so excited to to have the thing that sometimes it doesn't work out, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, but like you said, it it works because of this huge combination of factors, right? Yeah. The design yeah. of the game, the history of the game, the kind of game it is, the audience that was generated, and also like that a huge fraction of the audience comes from tabletop RPGs, right? Um, oh yeah. And and that audience is like really accustomed to chaos, right? Because that's that's scheduling a, problems, yeah, and like random just bullshit. So <laughs> and and also it's a it's a relatively forgiving. Uh, audience because it's all about people, right? Um, for like in the, in the TTRPG space. So yeah, there's a lot going for it to allow it to to have that. And I don't, I don't know how much of it is by design versus just, you know, sort of a incidental consequence of just all of the history just of all decisions of that were made, you know? Yeah. Uh, all right, well, let's get on to some questions. Our questions come from our listeners over at podcast.bscotch.net. Highest upvoted question comes from uh I, I think this is modern wizard maybe but the m is missing so it's just odern wizard i don't know if that nice i don't know what that means it's an odern uh, wizard 
Oh, darn it. It says, a few episodes back, you discussed your ZSA Moonlander keyboards. Oh, yeah. Uh, Having had more time to work with them and adjust, have you grown to love them or do you have some buyer's remorse? I was considering making the leap, but would appreciate the insight. uh, I don't use mine because turns out that having to relearn an entire keyboard was just very annoying. Even if, even if after playing with it for a bit, I was like... I could see that if I somehow was able to surmount this hurdle, that it would be great. Of basically not being able to type for like a month. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a, that's a hard sell for me, uh, especially for where I'm at life-wise. We've got, we got a baby and stuff. Because this is usually stuff that I would do if I was like, oh, yeah, I got this new piece of tech. I'm going to go spend some hours on it, you know. Mm-hmm. You just got to dunk 20 hours into it. Just casually. So, yeah. And I'm yeah, like, casually. No, I have time for that shit. So, uh, so yeah, I don't use mine. I just use a split. I got a different split keyboard, but it's just a keyboard. You know? Yeah. My, so my wife still uses hers really like mm-hmm. she just absolutely. So, which I'll say, cause I'm about to also say that I don't use mine anymore. Um, but there <laughs> are definitely people out there and I think sure. Sure. On our yeah. team sure. Uses uses his. His. Yep. And he's been doing some fun, cool, weird stuff with it too. Um, with like he's using it as a mouse now, I guess, and some, some other stuff, right? So, uh, so like Sam said, depending on your willingness to dedicate the time, um, the payoff I think is there. I think that's I think yeah, that's true. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think for for me it was a similar kind of a deal where like I I spent a six weeks I think on it, um, something like that, and and I got to the point where it was like it was I was typing regular speed and like all that kind of stuff, right? But it was still the case that for like programming and for navigation. Um, uh, yeah, their, their decision to remove, so, cause there's no F keys, right. And there's no, there's no escape key. That's true. There's no escape key. Like the, those, those keys are gone. That, that, that row is gone. And then also yeah, bearing the, in mind, you can rebind any key to yeah, anything, you can rebind anything, but, like, to anything. but in terms but of the number of keys, there. yeah. Like the, yeah. the F keys aren't there. And then the two sort of rightmost columns that, that on a normal keyboard have like backspace and pipe and enter and stuff. Right. The, and and then like the one key adjacent to that um, are also gone in terms of number of keys, and and then no numpad, no arrow, keys, no numpad, no, no arrows, and like I said, none, so, none of that entire right. So chunk. to get to get the full set of functionality, you have to relearn so many things because you have to the F keys now have to exist somewhere, so they have to be mapped onto something. All of those right hand keys have to go somewhere. The escape key, like everything, has to go somewhere. And what I found was that there were too few keys. Like they'd removed too much for for me as a programmer because I'm I'm using all the F keys. I'm using every fucking character. I'm using everything on the whole keyboard. Using the arrow keys. Using, I'm using, using everything all the time. Yep. And and I just couldn't find a way to overload the smaller set of keys that my brain could just like keep track of, and my fingers felt good doing. You know. Um, and again, I was like, I was getting better at it, and I had settled on a on a on a key binding that was pretty good. But it was just still the case that I just was frustrated, kind of constantly at a low level. So I also, so I got a new keyboard. Um, so I, had, but right before we got the Moonlander, I had splurged on, on with my own money because the Moonlanders we just bought with studio money because we're like, this is you know ergonomic Too stuff fancy. for mm-hmm. people, right? Um, but before that, I had splurged on this uh, Keychron, um, this Keychron keyboard. That's a, a sixty. Uh, 10 keyless, like the six seventy percent whatever they call them. But the 10, 10 keyless keyboard, because I like that smaller space, because the mouse closer, all that stuff. And I love that thing. It was just so heavy and like felt so good to type on, you know. And I wanted that again, but the, but having used the Moonlander, I was like, I need that split keyboard though, because now it's that's, the way to that, go. It's just so much better. So yep. so I I've replaced it with a fancy 
key cron split because they just released a split keyboard. I think it's the Q11, I think. Um, but so, so I basically got that thing instead. So I still get that like, it's a really good feeling keyboard, and I and I really like it. Um, but it's back to just a regular ass keyboard, and I it took about a week to kind of like be able to use the regular keyboard again, you know. Uh, but now I just feel like I'm fly. It feels so good again. It was like a breath of fresh air after trying <laughs> yeah. to get a moon lander for, for six weeks. Um, see, I yeah, think that's what we kind of learned first. is like, yeah, 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 yeah. It depends on your use case. So many of these ergonomic keyboards basically decided, Hey, you know, what's not ergonomic reaching for keys, which is but, true, you know, which not, is true. It's not wrong. But if you remove those keys, then you've replaced it with a new problem, which is now you've got to do weird, like a uh, hand stretching key yeah. combos to like recreate. Like if you don't have like an F7 key and instead you have to like hit like control shift seven or something to do that, uh, then that's probably yeah. worse. And, then especially, <laughs> and especially though, if you're using something like VS Code, which we just talked about earlier, right? But like VS Code, if you ever pop open its key, its key bindings, uh, options so you can like go edit your hotkeys and stuff. Oh. You know? The sheer fucking number of things that do stuff. Trillions. And and so that's the other thing too is like to be able to then overlap sort of behavior on keys by reprogramming stuff and not conflict with other things yep. that you need to do. I, yeah, it's one of the things that it's like I've and I, and I think I think since my wife mostly she doesn't code she writes she writes a lot but it's all prose right and she loves it. I think it's one of those things where I, I feel like if I was writing like text if I was if I was an author right um, and I didn't need all of the fucking symbols and the F keys like constantly all the time I think be, that's where I would really love yeah later. well it's it's also I think it speaks to an interesting interaction between uh, some parts of the expertise that you developed right in terms of timing which is like if you had developed expertise on the moon lander before basically knowing and rehearsing and using all of the uh, hotkeys Within some oh, yeah. VS code. Right. Yeah. Because then you're that adding hits at a very different in. time. Yep. That's yep. a very yep. different thing. And it probably would just be better because it like uh you know, it allows you to feel like you're just typing faster, which is kind of what you get out of it. But I think to the extent that you've already developed a lot of expertise in a particular way of using the keyboard, making what seems like optimal changes sort of like locally to a keyboard setup can probably interfere with enough of those. I think it's also the experience I had because of course, you know, I've talked about my left hand having a hundred and twenty eight keybinds on it for clip studio paint and spine and stuff just the just the left side of the keyboard right um which yeah that was a problem when i was working on the moon lander because it was trying to figure out again how to how to put it's just it was so many layers that i've already gone into layering stuff into that side of the keyboard and then missing and now, some keys and having to go back yeah. and then add yeah there's like a whole fucking thing there that i think was too much so it may have just arrived at the wrong time for us frankly in terms of uh, making it easy to adopt yeah i think if right. you haven't done i think if you were if you had fewer needs for the sheer number of keys that's what was your starting point yeah. i think you're right that it would be because yeah being able to just to add things one at a time because i've been mean, struggling with it, and i'm sure that seth was having to is like in particular like on your the right your right pinky is like its job is to do like all of the most important special characters that are used for programming you know it's like yep. the pipe and the brackets and like all the stuff right and they just they just aren't fucking there Right. And so it was just like every single yeah. key. You basically, it forces a intense relearning because you, re, you basically have yeah. to redecide how you want to hit those keys. How do you well, want and, to the the arrow keys. Yeah, and the arrow and keys. Yeah, and the arrow yeah. keys. Yep. Yeah, I couldn't quite get I want my keys. Out, unfortunately, but yeah, I wish I could. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I feel like I could, 
but yeah, just like you said, the when we're actively trying to like develop this game, we have a small team, right? So like if any one of us suddenly is like at one third capacity for a month, all of us are at one third capacity for that month <laughs> because we, we're well, all we, interdependent on each other. But I mean, we know? do talk a lot about like being able to take the time to go fast, right? I just think it's the sort of thing where I think I think the reality is given the level of investment all of us have already put into very specific tool use cases for our keyboards. Mm-hmm. I think it actually it's just the sort of thing that like that tool, the Moonlander, is like has a, actually has a harder time making us go fast. If that makes sense. Yeah, it was to make yeah. us go safe. It's, it's ergonomics, yes. right? Yeah. We weren't necessarily going to be like typing faster because of it, right? It's yeah. just it was. Yeah. Just I do. I mean, I do think that if. If the Moonlander had, it, honestly, if it just had more keys, and, and like, and the weird thing is, like, the the place where they added keys is like in the middle. I don't get in it. the I middle. Yep. It's more. Yep. It's which is like, and I can see how maybe that makes better ergonomic sense, maybe. But the fact is, like, my my hands are trained to you know, like to go out to yeah to go out, and otherwise keep my hands like not moving from the middle, and then like mm-hmm. to go outward if I need to. And now having go, having going like in and out, actually now now just mm-hmm. in instead of out. Yeah, which instead again, of your instead of your pinky finger reaching out, your yeah. index finger has to reach inward. Yeah, which probably is ergonomically better. I think that's probably oh, true. Definitely, yeah. Uh, but you know, if they just if they I don't even care they added those keys there. If they just had also still had the one ones. extra fucking column, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and one extra row, you know, then like I, honestly, I think I, I, that would have been because then it would just be like basically the keyboard again, right? Except yeah, or it's a linear, keyboard. so everything's in a column instead of kind of staggered, right? Um, but it would just been like a regular keyboard with some cool features, like, like the the cool like because then the thumb thing would be really interesting instead of the like thumb oh, thing is fucking fit. great. That's the it's truth cool. too. It's yeah. really good. Yeah, yeah, I, but it's like how do you fit enough? things onto there, you know, and like tricky. Yeah. I, I think if you were able to start with like, I still have basically all of my keys so I can start with like a regular key binding. Right. And then gradually. But now we're with a linear and now split keyboard and then with this cool thumb pad. Right. And then now you can make decisions one at a time incrementally to like, Ooh, now that I can, let me move this key over here and see how that works or whatever. And then over like now over years, cause it's the way that you normally like learn all this stuff is over years. Right. Like, yep. You learn your original touch typing um, over like months in school and then over years of practice, right? And then for each new thing that you add, like being able to quickly hit a hit a the plus button or or something, right? Um, or the right F key for a new hotkey or something like that. Like you learn that just by doing it a bunch of times. And if you have to do that with 20 keys all of a sudden, right? It's uh, a big ask. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. It was yeah. It was it was a thing. Uh so yeah, if you're not a programmer, maybe. But otherwise, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe look somewhere else. I think it's one of those uh, love hate things. Like, like the people who invest the time and have the right kind of use case uh, seem to kind of just universally love the Moonlander. Yep. Um, but those who can't invest the time or whose use cases uh, make us that the just sheer amount of time they have to invest it's way higher, is, yeah. is really high. Um, that's where I think, but I think it's still the case. Like everybody wants to love it though. Cause it is like a cool concept. It's, you can tell, you can tell that it would keyboard. be better. That's the thing. It would yeah. be better. If I could just like wave a fucking wand and somehow just have it in my brain. Yeah. Yes. I would take <laughs> it over a keyboard any day of the week, but like yeah. it was it just too, has too few to keys. Yeah. So I'm a big fan these days of, cause I still like that constraint space and I need that split keyboard. I'm a big fan of like the 10 keyless. Everything is kind of like, like having the arrow keys kind of bumped, like pushed up into the rest mm-hmm. of the keys, you know, so that you just don't have to move your hands that much. Um, 
And so, yeah, so if you're looking for a cool split keyboard that feels really good, um, I do recommend that Keychron. I think I think it's the Q11, but it's it's their they only have one split keyboard right now. So, uh, and it's got a little, it's got two little knobs too, like little twisty knobs in the corners. I, I don't know what to do with them because like there's nothing I need to use it, but you can but you can bind them to stuff, right? So you can like cool. you can use them on your lights or you can just do whatever with them. Um, again, I, that is true. I was also I missing my. I was missing my media keys on the Moonlander of like having a volume knob and a mute, you know, which like the thing is, again, you can code it up so that you can like flip into a different layer and hit those, but you still have to memorize their positioning and all. Yeah. So it's just. You can't just go grab a knob, you know, which is. You can't just go twist and I'll be like, I want this to be quieter, knob. (laughs) Uh, all right. Next question comes from uh, Fly Hoppy Axe Rampa, who says many, many episodes ago. Adam said something along the lines of the best games have a quality mini game in them, which was in reference to Cult of the Lambs mini game, which was quite good. A few episodes later, Seth made an unrelated comment about how he would love to work on a side project, but doesn't want to do it without all the B-Scotch tools like cake frames and stuff. Mm -hmm. Seth, have you considered making your own mini game within Crashlands 2? I don't think I need to. Yeah. Crashlands 2 is all, and it's already a whole bunch of mini games in in a sense, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And also like, uh, again, integration is the problem. Like, yeah, I could make chess or some bullshit, right? But then like, where does it go? Like, when does the player come across it? Does it mean anything? Like, is it consequentially tied to- Do you get something? Is there a ranking Mm -hmm. attached to it? Do you get cards? Is it like Gwent? Do I collect cards from random peasants for some reason? Like, what's the mechanism by which I play it? Yeah, I think Cult of the Lamb has an uh, interesting approach because they have basically a dice game that you can play with some of the characters, right? And there's some stuff, there's like some artifacts that you can win from beating each of the characters once. And then otherwise you just can, it's like a gambling game. You can make money, right? And money is useful in, everywhere across the whole game. We, do, we don't, we've talked about this before, we don't have a currency in Crashlands 2. So there's no universal exchange mechanism that would make something like that uh, easy to integrate, if that makes sense. Where you could just say like, we'll put whatever we want in there and then it just, it spits out money. And we'll balance how much money mm-hmm. it spits. And that's it. Um, yeah. It would so be actually something like impacts, impacts story or, or it could be like uh, an in-universe game that just like the people of this world tend to know, right? So that mm-hmm. it's something that you can do and you can like play against other people and it has some kind of a consequence. Like they might give you a, a yeah, you'd have like a right. You basically have like recipes in that track or, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but then you got to go do all that, you know, too. Which, yeah, which isn't to say we won't do it because we've still got quite a bit of development time, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, but it, it, it's not like you can just, you know, make a mini game and then just like put it in there, you know, it, it's got to somehow cohere into the into the collective whole. I think an interesting example of this is that uh, World of Warcraft has pet battles. Yeah. Which so so basically, like the game was full of these critters, like squirrels and rabbits, and you know, and they're, they're, just they're all just flavor, like essentially. Yeah, they're just like level one mobs that walk around, and they have like one HP. And if you just for whatever reason, you know, blast them with a fireball or something, they're just like meh, and they just die, yeah. right? So like they're just there for atmosphere and just to have something to blast <laughs> for fun. I don't know. Uh, and then I think it was maybe like three or four expansions into the game's existence. They, they ended up at a certain point, they had like hundreds and hundreds of these different critters. And yeah. they were like, we got to do something with these. So they essentially made up like a Pokemon style thing where like you you can capture them and, and then 
tame, like train them and battle them with each other. And they have, they have different types. There's like magic types and dragon types and like they, and just like Pokemon, the some have like bonuses or resistances and they've got move sets and, and they level up. And, and nowadays I think there's like several thousand different pets <laughs> yeah. in this pet battling. It's like, it's bigger than Pokemon in terms of like how many things there are yeah. in it. Um, but it's so, so different from every other thing in the game. Like it's a turn-based battle that has absolutely nothing to do with your character, your gear, yeah. your your rating. It's a self-enclosed system. You know yeah. I mean? And so as a result, you got you got like people who are really into the pet battles and do them all the time, and people who absolutely don't give a shit about them, mm -hmm. right? Because it's just it's just a whole different game within the game. And so every now and then there'll be these like um events or whatever these like maybe it's like uh you're trying to get like reputation with a, with a faction and there's all kinds of different ways to do it and then every now and then like a little pet battle quest will appear mm. and if you do that pet battle quest you know you'll get you'll get some stuff you'll get some reputation or whatever and there's like there's and there's a portion of people like somewhere in the middle of the venn diagram where like they don't give a shit about pet battling and they don't like it and they don't want to do it but they want to do other quests but they do it yep. <laughs> because it's because it's integrated into these other systems in some ways um i think that's kind of weird i don't yeah. know it's it's but hard to it's, but i think that's where it's again where it's like that it adds to the and i think maybe if we kind of zoom out a bit to this concept right and i think it's less, it's less about like a mini game in the sense of like a fully enclosed thing and i think it's more about something to do yeah. that's basically just for funsies as in like mm -hmm. games are already just for funsies right except that they are that they the way that they create fun is through reward and challenge systems, right? And, and as soon as you have like a reward system or a progression system tied to some part of the game, and, and as soon as like that's the point of the game, right? Then it's less of like, oh, you're doing this just because you can, right? Or just because yeah. you like it. There's there's this other stuff kind of pulling you through. And when it comes to these other things, because uh, like Fallout New Vegas also had a card game, right? Uh, or at least had cards. I don't even because I literally never tried to play it. Right? Did uh, have a card game? <laughs> yeah, like because you could you could like collect cards as you go and, and like and I never and I'm pretty sure I like I vaguely remember people like like one of the options I could always have with a lot of characters was to like play the game with them or something you know, but yeah, I could be misremembering that because I just remember there were cards that you could collect and people would talk about some game, mm. but I never played it because similar like I didn't care you know, but I thought it was kind of like I was like oh this is this is neat that there's just like this kind of thing you can just go do, you know? Yeah. You don't need to. I don't even know if there's a reason to besides like I think again, a collector it just, sort of thing, you know? Oh, well, it just gives you, okay, I think we were talking about earlier with Baldur's Gate, like having having just, you would rather players, if they're getting a little bored of whatever the content is or a little burned out by whatever, you know, because you could, you could overindulge on a game system yeah. so you'll feel it, you know? Uh, you'd rather have them stay within the game world for a while while taking a break then go play mm -hmm. something else because of the, the unhooking problem there, right? Which is yeah. like... This is how I see fishing, actually, in a lot of games. It's like, to it's, me, fishing is like that mini game staple where it's often like a little bit... It, it is like hooked into the rest of the game, typically, in some extent, but it's almost always in this like really light touch kind of optional way so that if you don't do it at all, it's probably it's fine. fine. Um, and it's one of those things where it's like, it just adds this layer where like when you walk by... A body of water and if you're there's if it's not something you need to be doing or want to be doing right now but you don't really want to leave the game mm -hmm. it's oh, just so easy just like just just go fishing a little bit like in terraria i do a lot of fishing just because i can you know and i catch mm -hmm. bugs like i just love like as i'm like flying through exploring spaces right and i got like my like my bug nets one of the first things to invest in 
and I just like swing try it. to catch every bug, you know, just like swing, right. swing in the net, catching things, you know, and like have like my bug collection. And they had these other layers too, where you have like your terrariums you can build and stuff, mm-hmm. right? Which don't do anything. It's just like it's just fun. It's just fun that you can do that, right? Yeah, I think yeah. Ha- having those systems in the game that are that let there be a bit of a reprieve from the overall, you know, primary purpose of you playing is is just nice. And so they don't need to fit super well, you know, mm-hmm. frankly. I think that's fair. But also like that's that's the entire MO of what we're doing in Crash Ends 2 is like we're trying to make a we're, we're working on this game that has a variety of levels of involvement. Yeah. Right. Like you can do, you can go out of your way and do like intense combat things. You can kind of sneak past stuff and, and like just do some casual harvesting. Mm-hmm. You can spend some time like work, working on your base. You can fish, you can farm, you can work on your pet stuff. Right? I mean, shit, like, if you don't really want to do combat, you could probably, I think actually progress just by training bigger monsters into lower level areas, making the murder. Yeah. And then hoovering up scraps yeah. like some weird vulture, mm-hmm. you know. Pretty sure you can do yeah that. use the use the environment to destroy the environment, you mm-hmm. know. Um, yeah, and so there's all these different there's there's a lot of different modes you can operate in. So then the idea of like mixing in a an additional mini game into there it kind of seems almost redundant at that point, yeah. you know. So. Yeah, is it that, yeah, that's exactly. But I think I think that's why I would think about it more like just conceptually is like there, yeah, there's one. So yeah, so one part is like having lots of of connected systems, but that allow you to kind of move between systems however you want, right? And where none of them are strictly a thing you have to, and so like this, this where kind of questions too is going on. And I think that that absorbs a lot of that kind of big picture goal or something like this. Yeah. But I think there's, there's another one though that I think of that, that I, seems to be more kind of what the question asker is getting at is like, is the frivolous one. Like that doesn't really do anything towards your main game mm-hmm. goals, mm-hmm. you know? Um and, but also the concept of a, of a game, like, you know, calling it a minigame, I would just rephrase it as like something to do that's that at least some people find fun, right? And so like kind of going back to the Terraria thing, one of the things that I want to have in Crash Ends 2, I don't know if we'll do it or not, but is is because we have like little critters in the game. Mm-hmm. They don't do anything. They're just little critters that are like well, they just do stuff. You can catch them. You can catch them now and turn them into fish bait. Oh, can, can you catch them now? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's new. Yeah, so, so now you can use them for fishing, right? Um, but also like, I want to put them in a terrarium because like the yeah, moment that I can do that in Crashlands 2, right? Part of like part of my new way of playing the game would be critter collection. I would basically make a shrine. I would have like, here's all the critters I mean, that yeah, I've caught, you, you know, because mm-hmm. now and like and I and if it had no outcome besides that, I got to be and, like literally all we had is like a, like a terrarium. You can put a thing in. You can just watch it moving around. Right. Mm-hmm. Again, basically like terraria does. Like if that's all we had implemented, that would create this entire new pointless minigame experience that I would just yeah. fucking love, right? And to me, like, that's more of what this is kind of getting at. Is well, like that's... That kind that, of that's, stuff, right? Yeah, and that, that to me kind of just comes back to, like, the, the base building idea, right? Yeah. Of, like, yep. back, in the, back in the first game, we had, like, taxidermied creatures you could create or, like, trof- boss trophies you could get and, and you could, like, make gold floors and, you know, mm-hmm. make farms and do all this stuff. And it's, and it's 99% cosmetic stuff. Yep. Yeah. Right. And every now and then there'd be like maybe a, a firework launcher that you could slap and it'll shoot fireworks or something. Right. But for the most part, it's just stuff that just kind of looked a certain way. And then you used it to make an interesting like cosmetic scene for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even just it's like what you're describing there is kind of like it's just that. Right. With like yeah. an interesting mechanism of like getting the creatures and stuff. And then like building your little trailer. And you just got this little like. You know? Yeah, you get this little room with your creatures. Well, no, it, and it's different because like, like, I don't really care much about 
base building, but I love creatures, right? So it's that kind of fun intersection of those two yeah. things where it's like, in the end, it's just, you're like, you're right, it's just base building, right? But it, yep. adding that layer now of like, and especially because, because like, because like in, uh, like in Terraria, you can get a fancier bug net, you know, and like, and they're, depending on where you go, there's just different kinds of bugs and they have different bait power, like, which presumably sounds like we're doing too. Um, but then also like having that be part of like why I go out and explore because I'm like, I haven't filled out my cabinet of curiosities yet, you know, oh, of yeah. like. Because you're something like, else to be excited like, about, you know, yeah. out in the game world, which is awesome. Yeah. yeah. So there's there's tons of that already. And of course, as we're working on the game over the next big chunk of time, there'll be even more of that stuff. So, yeah. And I think I still kind of uh, agree with the original premise of what we were talking about at the time, it sounds like, which is that which is that they're really great games have that kind of stuff um, because those are things that you add because you can. Right. Mm -hmm. That's true. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a signal of like the, the studio is like able to like people are able to work on stuff because they like it because they want to. Just fun, it's like, right? oh, it'd be cool if we had X and then they can just do that. Yeah, right? they can just do <laughs> so, it. And then, and then the downstream consequence on the players is that there's just a lot of stuff going on that they get to true. choose. Just saying a, a mini game is actually a consequence of a studio having either like a lot of resources or good mm -hmm. development practices. Yeah. And either of those things can result in a good game overall. Yeah. They don't it's not guaranteed, right? But like it helps. So yeah, it's kind of like uh, when I, I got I got my I got a fancy vape pen a while ago. And it has so it's got like little LEDs on it to kind of tell you if it's like heating up or whatever, right? But also it's got a little gyroscope there because it uses that to decide like, oh, have I been picked up? So I need to start heating back up again. Like clever, like mm -hmm. cool little physical design, right? But they had that stuff in there. They were just like, well, we already have these lights. There's four little lights and there's a and there's a gyroscope. So let's just put some games on I this, right? Say, yeah. so they have <laughs> they have like a little Simon Says game where it'll like light up on one side and you have to tilt it to that side, right? Like absolutely no reason no, to have absolutely. this in here. But I was and I've and I only played it once because like who needs that, right? But I was tickled pink by the idea that and and, the, and that to me that like that actually sold this device on a level that I had wasn't already bought into because I was like the only reason to do this is because people were allowed to do something they thought would be fun, right? And they were invested in this. Yeah, I, I like the idea of uh, it's right? a green flag, right? Where it's, yeah, exactly. it's a sign that there's excess or there's some slack available. Uh, yeah, a sign of slack. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's like a heated seat in a car, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't need it, but the fact that it's there, it's like mm, that's, yeah. that's a nice little perk. It's, yeah, so yeah, and then just is also nice because now there's more stuff for the player to do, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yep. All right. Well, that's all the time we have uh, for this week. We'd like to thank our producers, Fat Bard and Sampa Costa, for putting the podcast together, and thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord running. To get more involved in the Butterscotch community, you can just go to podcast.bscotch.net where we have links to the Discord, a way for you to donate, and links to the archives. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.